Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. On today's episode, we will be talking with Deirdre Swartz, a lawyer, a practitioner of trade compliance, and a professor. You'll hear us discuss the benefits of engaging with the local World Trade Center organization. We'll talk about the politics of international trade and how to go about setting up a mentor relationship. Mentees are often um, timid around asking for th- things from people who are already successful or doing what they want to do. And so don't go out and request a mentorship. Just say, I have a few questions. How did you get started in your business? What are your likes and dislikes? So my first question is, uh, what is your experience in international trade and, and how did you get to where you are today? Okay, great. Thank you, Kelly. So I started in international trade by a very long roundabout way. I have a very bohemian career path, but I started out in the practice of law right after law school. That's where I started. And I was just doing business representation, uh, courtroom, boardroom representation for small to medium-sized businesses. And while I really enjoyed that, I noticed that a lot of my clients were buying and selling businesses. So then I started doing that full time. I got my real estate broker's license and I became certified as a valuation analyst. And so I could value a business and sell the business assets and real estate together. So I did that for several years until the financing um, fell out of that, you know, with the economy. So once the financing dried up for buying and selling businesses, I had done a lot of corporate transactions. And so I began working at a telecommunications company in the law department. And so I was putting together transactions and that was primarily a national company. But I started doing a lot of outside interests related to water districts and water conservation and water education. And through that, I was able to put together some international transactions. And I was writing and teaching and speaking about water conservation issues at that that time. So that really piqued my interest in international trade, first from the uh, water side and then through business. And then I had an opportunity come up at a local company to work in their law and compliance department. And so I've been doing that for nine years and I focus on international and commercial transactions. I work for a corporation that does business in 229 countries and territories. So that allows me a great opportunity for international business, international travel, transactions and regulatory compliance. So (laughs) short story or long story, that's how I ended up here. Excellent. So uh, you said you had experience as a valuation analyst to value companies. Now, does that translate well into customs valuation? 
Um, not so much customs, but um, one of my roles at my current employment is doing the due diligence when we go to acquire another business. And so that's where the valuation analysis comes in. And it's interesting because using the same market valuable values and elements, you can value a business in the United States or outside of the United States fairly uniformly. So I find that really fascinating too. The fact that business assets in different parts of the world actually have some of the similar values. Yeah, because in my limited experience, I've noticed that, you know, sometimes valuation concepts and theories can differ from country to country. And um, even within the U.S., sometimes with accounting principles versus how customs wants things valued. So do you ever run into, I I know you said internationally with uh, businesses, they seem to be uniform, but do you run into any conflicting regulations regarding value? Oh, sure. Absolutely. There are all different kinds of accounting methods and the accounting methods used in the United States aren't the same ones used in other countries. So you really have to know the business accounting principles, or at least understand them. I don't claim to know them, but at least understand the differences. And then I also find it really interesting in due diligence work that whether you're analyzing the risk in Germany or in Singapore or someplace else, there are basic business risks that you need to look at, for example, for export compliance or for anti-corruption compliance. And so it's a matter of identifying those risks and addressing them. Okay, so export compliance, do you, do you think U.S. export compliance, I mean, it seems to be much more stringent than any other country that you would run into? I don't know that it's more stringent. It's more far-reaching, I would say that. Uh-huh. For example, the U.S. laws actually attached to an item that's exported from the U.S. for the rest of that item's life. So regardless of how many times it's bought and sold in different countries, U.S. export law still attaches to that. And then there are deemed export and secondary sanctions that are kind of unique to the United States, meaning that we claim jurisdiction over all items and business wherever it's located in the world. And in some cases, um, for example, Russia, United States government actually imposes secondary sanctions um, to prevent other people from doing business with persons that the U.S. government decides not to do business with. So it's much more far-reaching. I don't know that it's more complex, mm-hmm. but definitely more far-reaching for sure. So when you do international company acquisition, is export control your number one concern? Yeah, it's one of the big ones, anti-corruption and export. And the reason those kind of go hand in hand and the reason they're so um, highly valued or investigated is because there's so much enforcement activity today. That's where the U.S. government is spending a lot of time enforcing sanctions, export controls and anti-corruption measures. And because that's where the U.S. government focuses its attention, Mm -hmm. then that's where we need to focus our attention. Right. That's where the high dollar fines come in. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Has these 301 Chinese import tariffs, has that affected what you do? 
Yes, the trade war with China has impacted um, our industry, both on the imports into China, i.e. customers purchasing our goods, and then imports um, into the United States. And it's not it's not a huge dollar amount. It's the fact that we're paying attention to details and tracking things and, and and we know that with all the tension, there's likely to be more changes in the export regulations and import regulations. So it's more of making our customers and our industry, um, what's the word? Insecure, I think is the word, because we're not sure what the future holds, but we anticipate that there's more coming. It seems like more so than in any other time, a company has to be able to pivot on whatever sort of regulation gets implemented. Exactly. And not only pivoting, but how do you strategically plan for some of these things? You know, in some ways it's impossible. In other ways, you just do your best and try to strategically plan what could happen. If this happens, what are we going to do in response? And, you know, how do we plan for those things? Uh, so speaking of pivoting, can I ask you about your um, academic life and, and where you are in, involved with um, academia with international trade? Sure. sure. Yeah, so I graduated from law school many, many years ago. And um, since then, I've always maintained a foothold in academia because I think it's important. One, because there's no reason for me not to share my knowledge and expertise. And two, I always learn more when I do that. So um, over the years, I've taught law at university. I've taught um, international trade and export at um, a local institute associated with World Trade Center. I've also, um, I serve on the board of directors of a center for international and comparative law. And that keeps me in the game. Like what are the new issues? What are the cutting issues in academia as far as research papers? And where is the focus on not only research, but different initiatives that are being advanced in order to promote trade. So I've often been involved in that. And some of my best experiences are working with the World Trade Center and some other local organizations and international organizations in order to help promote trade. Because I feel that promoting trade between countries and jurisdictions can only help us. I don't think there's a downside to it. And right now there's quite a bit of tension. So it's always good to get out and talk to other people who are, for example, doing business in China and some of the issues they're facing and people doing business in Russia and the issues they're facing. Mm -hmm. So the learning opportunity as well as keeping up with what's going on. So the World Trade Center, is are they is their client mainly companies that are wanting to improve their trading capacity? Or are their clients uh, students of international trade or people, professionals working um, in international trade? All of the above. So oh. World Trade Center Association, there are about 330 um, located around the world. And it's like a network, but it's promoting trade with their home country. It's um, teaching students and people who want to be exporters 
um, how to do it properly and getting them in touch with the appropriate government agencies. Um, it's promoting trade missions between countries and travel and arrangements that way, as well as anyone who wants to be involved in trade, anyone currently involved in trade, as well as a number of service providers that support international trade. So it's across the board, a whole bunch of different people working together to promote trade. Well, I guess I was under the impression that the World Trade Center was uh you know, just for company, small companies wanting to improve trade, but uh, our audience, the target audience for this podcast would be up-and-coming professionals, uh, particularly women in the field who want to advance their career. And so how could getting involved with, a, with their local uh, World Trade Center, how could that um, advance a career? Oh, yeah, there are lots of ways. One, and I should say each World Trade Center um, location has different has a different mission statement. Some put on trade events, some do just World Trade Day, some do education. So they're all different. But the good news is once you coordinate with your local World Trade Center, um, you now have a network of World Trade Centers all around the world that will support you in whatever it is you want to do. And our World Trade Center here in Denver actually posts jobs in international trade and connects people to jobs and that sort of thing. So that's one of the things they do. But um, even when I travel and I do quite a bit of international travel, I often step in and introduce myself at World Trade Centers in other cities. And I feel like I have a network already there on the ground of people that would help me if I need it can get me in touch with someone if I needed or sometimes just um, the one in uh, Amsterdam is located next to the airport and so I just went there when I had a layover so there are lots of different ways that a World Trade Center can help but it's mainly the networking opportunity to get in touch if that's what you want to do for a career or you're already working in international trade you want to expand your business that's a great opportunity. In addition to OWIT, I think World Trade Center is a pretty good resource. Are there any other organizations or groups that you might recommend for people just starting out or trying to build their career? Uh, I'm sure there are organizations. I'm trying to think of some. Or the other question I have is the certifications that people can get in order to build their career too. It's all the same kind of topic where, you know, how can people uh, network and how can they build their, their resume? Like what is it that you would suggest uh, to, for someone just starting out? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, the World Trade Center Denver offers a certification program. and You don't have to be in Denver to attend the classes. They have online training and videos and everything, but you could get certification through there. There are a number of places that offer certification, and I think that's particularly important if you don't have a lot of experience, then you can show that you've gone to get this additional education. And I think the one in Denver is a one-year program and it's not full-time, you know, you continue work and everything to get your certification, but there are a number of them. Um, Export Compliance Training Institute is a really good one. And that's more, um, 
that's more intense educational training for a specific type of export regulation. Like you could do defense related exports or you could do commercial related. Um, that's a good one. I think more important than additional certification might be the networking, honestly. And I think it's always good to know people surround yourself with people who do the things you want to do and learn from them. And I also found every stage of my life, I have found that a mentor is really important. So I would strongly encourage that as well. So uh, I have a few years of experience in international trade, but I've been contacted by a couple of my previous coworkers and people that I met through OIT um, asking these types of questions. So I wanted the podcast here to, to kind of give them different perspectives. How does one start? Um, the ones I've done are unofficial mentoring programs, and it's just people I meet along the way, whether it's at um, a law school event or um, maybe an intern that worked with our company for a while or something. It's just people I meet along the way, and they say, oh, I'd really like to do that someday. How did you get into it? And it's more of an informal conversation, but mentoring in the sense that I share with them my experiences, my mistakes, give them pointers, coaching on some things just to kind of help them along. And I think it's also important for mentorship because you don't know what the future holds. Well, none of us do, but you don't know specifically what kinds of jobs there are in international trade. Mm -hmm. And you go to some job fairs or until you meet different people and, um, and just ask around if you're genuinely interested in a mentorship opportunity, there are plenty of people who are available to do it. I always have one or two mentors and I have two currently and they each need different types of support from me, but just depending on where they are in their career. And it's not like I'm going to help them get a job or anything like that. It's just helping prepare them for different opportunities or helping them take the opportunities that come to them mm -hmm. and, and then grow their career. And I can tell them, oh, I did it this way, but that doesn't mean you have to. And I always tell my mentees, you don't have to make the same mistakes I did because I'm sharing them with you. So we all make mistakes, but it's just a matter of learning. And I think that's a really important part. There aren't a, t a lot of women in um, high levels of international trade. I'd like to see more. So I think it's also good to find a woman that you trust and respect and, and just start asking questions and then ask them sometime, oh, could we meet um, maybe once a month and I could ask more questions. Does that work for you? And I take a much more informal approach, but I have had mentees that came to me with very specific needs and goals. And so we worked on those together. I love the idea, but it is a little intimidating from a mentee's perspective to to reach out and you know ask for 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 help. And um, I appreciate the women who have reached out to me. But um, do you have advice from the mentor's perspective? Uh, what, uh, like you said, I can just share with them my experience and how I got to where I am today. But I mean, there's no one route. I think you exactly. touched on it a little bit. Where you you have a law degree, some people don't some people just have experience or a certification it's it's such a wide field it's kind of hard to provide advice right it is I I totally agree with you and in that respect I introduce them to those other people 
like, uh, oh, come with me to this event. Now I want you to talk to so-and-so because they do this. Or um, come meet Mary because she started a totally different career path. And and I think it's more of expanding their horizons, not narrowing them. Mm-hmm. And I think mentors feel like they have to come up with all the answers. I don't have all the answers. So when someone comes to me, I'm like, oh, that's a good question. Let me ask some people I know and let's talk about it and, and find some place where you would fit or maybe you know they decide oh you know the additional schooling's not what I want right now and so let's talk about that and introduce them to other people i think it can be i think it can be intimidating or frustrating maybe on both parts but that's why i think you need to constantly have open communication with your mentor mentee in that relationship you have to be honest about what you both want i've had um sometimes a law student will want to come meet with me and instantly they ask me for a job well that's not what mentoring is so don't ever ask for a job i agree for mentorship I do agree with that. Uh, If you find a good mentor, which I feel like I have, I will never ask that mentor for a job because I don't want that to be the type of relationship that we have. I want to be able to just ask questions and ask, you know, and and get guidance. And, and I, it's true. I really think that's, I, I didn't know if that was a, something else someone else would believe in as well, but I definitely feel the same way that if you have a mentor, if you have the opportunity to have a mentor, uh, that shouldn't be the person who hires you. They, they will, they should just guide you on, on where and how to get hired. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So you know what I'm saying. And then, um, again, it's a give take relationship. What are you in it for? Why are you doing it? What's the purpose, the end goal? And then if everybody's open and honest about that, I think it could be a root really healthy mentorship relationship. And then the other the other question I always have is, do you have to put a label on it? Do you have to say, uh, can you be my mentor? Or can it just be someone in the industry that you reach out to and keep in touch with? Yeah, I think it can be. I don't think you have to label it. <laughs> I think if you're asking someone questions, and I think that's the other thing, mentees are often um, timid around asking for things things from people who are already successful or doing what they want to do. And so don't make, don't go out and request a mentorship. Just say, I have a few questions. How did you get started in your business? What are your likes and dislikes? What challenges you? And just start asking some questions and then see if that's the type of relationship you guys want to have. And then maybe say, oh, can we formalize this? Can I ask you more questions? Could we meet once a month? That kind of thing. You have to get to know each other first. I don't think every mentor, mentee relationship is destined to be, you know, everything (laughs) everybody wants. So you just have to feel it out. And if the person has the time to devote to answering your questions and is willing to do that, you don't even have to call it a mentorship. Just Mm -hmm. say, oh, let's do lunch once a month. And I appreciate your time. And, you know, especially now with all these difficult topics coming up in international trade with the 301 and, and, you know, uh, potentially export regulations becoming more complicated. I mean, just to be able to talk it out with somebody, get a different perspective is is super helpful. Yeah, it is. Like I call it a support group. (laughs) We're a bunch of people in international trade. We all get together. We commiserate. We complain. Then we talk about where it's headed. And, you know, we... It just makes us feel better. 
if you uh, if you just try to keep up to date by yourself, it feels overwhelming with how many topics and changes, and it's 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 hard to keep up. Absolutely. Well, one question I did want to ask you was in regards to academic industry. If someone wanted to get into research, or maybe this also involves government work, uh, if that's the type of international trade that they wanted to practice, do you have any guidance or suggestions on how they can go that route instead of maybe the professional uh, transactional in a, in a corporation uh, route? Right. Right. That's a really good question. So I think you have to do some background research first because you wouldn't want to be associated with an institution, um, an agency or something that did not have a good reputation. Because if you start out there, I think that bad reputation or difficult reputation would follow you wherever you go. So if you're interested in government work or academia, do some background research and ask people you know, people you trust and respect, what they feel about this institution. Also go online, learn everything you can about it. Who's on the board of directors? What is their mission statement? What are they doing? Because you don't want your personal values aligned with something that you don't believe in. For example, in international trade, or in international law, there's trade, there's transactions, there's human rights, there's everything. And I'm not saying any one of those are, are better or worse than the other. It's just you want to align your goals with that if that's where you want to go. So think about that from an institution perspective and ask people you trust and respect and, and even follow them on LinkedIn or something to see what kind of work they're doing before you get associated with them. Mm -hmm. And then I would just read everything I can. When I was writing and, and speaking on water issues, I was just constantly reading what other people are doing in other parts of the world and, and, and what their big issues were and where the body of research was headed on that issue. So I think it's a matter of reading and networking. Because it seems like you mentioned all of the, uh, the different types of research that could be done. It seems like trade more so than, you know, accounting is, is very political because there oh, it is. it's, it's, mm -hmm. there's so many more opinions and, you know, different ways to do things rather than accounting is seems to be <laughs> from an outsider's perspective seems to be black and white. This is how you do it. These are the rules. This is how you follow it. But the trade industry is just so interesting to me because yes, the U S has these particular rules, but then like you were saying, there's also room for discussion and research on, on human rights and how should there, should we have free trade agreements? I mean, that was the biggest argument of the 2016 election, right? Like that, that free trade is bad. Is it bad? You know, everyone has, an opinion and it seems that it's getting even more political that is so true and all the tensions around that because when you look at international trade you're talking about international affairs foreign policy trade policy commerce and industry and of course 
politics weaves in and out of every one of those elements. And so you have to decide where you're going to be in that. I try to remain as neutral as possible and support just the business objectives in front of me. But it's challenging, especially in these days. And there's a lot of trade tension. And I'm not sure the everyday person understands how trade impacts their life. You can live in St. Louis, Missouri and go do your shopping and you're surrounded. Maybe there are farmers nearby or not too far away. They're impacted by tariffs. But in your day-to-day life, you don't realize how your life is impacted by trade until until something goes wrong or, you know, the costs go up because we're impacted by tariffs. And so I think the everyday person doesn't give it much thought, whereas the rest of us, like you and me, we're in it every day. And so we're thinking about it, reading about it. And I read um, at least four different international newswire services every day just so I can get a different perspective on things. I think that's also important for international trade. You don't want to just always come at everything with the U.S. perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest of the world already thinks that we're very U.S. centric. We're very American centric. And so I think it's important to expand our own horizons and try to see things from other people's perspective. And again, going back to yours, it's not a value judgment. It's not whether trade is good or bad or trade deficit is a negative thing or, you know, the fact that we're able to trade internationally and that means we're able to purchase goods from other countries, we might have a trade deficit in that we're purchasing more than we're sending out. But to me, if we're a successful country or a successful company that's able to purchase things and manufacture and and do what we need to do in business, then that's a good thing, whether it's a deficit or not. So it's, I think it's important not to get caught up in all the politics because that can be very judgmental. Mm-hmm. And like you said, people have a lot of opinions. I think if we focus outside of ourselves, then we're able to see trade for what it is. And it's a matter of doing business on a global scale. If you look into trade, you look into it, there will always be like winners and losers when, when businesses move or decisions are made. Trade policy is trying to limit the amount of, of losers. What is that saying where it's like all boats rise, a rising tide rises, raises all boats or something like that. So it's yeah, like yes, we're, yes, we're, yes. we're trying to make the, the best, the best result for everyone, even though there might be some losers or someone might get harmed in the process or, you know, someone might have a negative impact because of it. Right. And, and there are costs associated with doing business. There are costs and risks in everything that we do. And now we're just seeing a little bit more cost on the export-import side than we did before, but the risks were always there. And so that's, you know, that's just a matter of doing business. Mm -hmm. So would you divide, or do you think it could be divided in such a way to, to describe international trade in two different sectors, like a policy sector and a transactional sector or just a compliance, uh, trade compliance sector. So trade compliance is, you know, analyzing the rules that are in place uh, in that particular country. And then like trade policy is the more political side where you'd move to DC, you'd work on a, you know, a particular policy, you know, uh, lobbying and all of that. Could you see a, a division of, of two different sides of, of trade compliance or are there more divisions or what is your opinion on that? 
Yeah, I definitely see those divisions. There's policy, which is really the um, interacting with the government and trying to influence decisions and that sort of thing. So policy, and then there that's trade policy. And then there are definitely trade transactions. What are you doing in this country? Are you buying? Are you selling? How is that accomplished and everything? And then, of course, neither one of those can stand alone because compliance, I think, is the umbrella over it. It's the regulations, keeping on top of the regulations, understanding them, knowing what you have to do in order to support your business transactions or in order to support your policy decisions. So I think compliance might be the umbrella over the other two, but there's definitely three different divisions. I, my biggest struggle right now is just people ask me what I do. Right? It's it's not an easy thing. <laughs> I just say import and export, you know, people buying and selling things across borders. But, like, it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that's, yeah. And how well are we able to say what we do? And, and how can we make other people understand that? Like I said, a lot of people in the U.S. are not up on what's important in international trade circles. So I think sometimes we have to explain more. Like if you're at a cocktail party, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to explain exactly what you do. But in the scheme of things, the fact that we are doing business globally, all of us are, whether we know it or not, are impacted by global business and global trade. And so I think it's important to to share a little bit of that wherever we can so people understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if someone gave me 30 minutes, I would talk about my job, but I'm trying to say, they just asked me how I did what I do and they don't want a 30 minute treatise on trade. So let's, <laughs> let's narrow this down. When I used to do, I um, still do a lot of export, but I also did anti-corruption compliance, you know, anti-bribery. And I remember sometimes, um, one time someone asked me, what do I do? And I said, oh, I manage uh, corruption for a company. <laughs> we all laugh. I mean, anti-corruption. <laughs> yes, you, you make sure they aren't corrupt. <laughs> That's right. And then there's one other benefit of doing international business and international trade, and that's the international travel. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that because <laughs> As you know, I love to travel the world. I've been to 56 countries so far. And so I think that's another added benefit and the fun part of it. Excellent. Well, I guess I have a narrow view of that because I know U.S. import regulations like the back of my hand and Mm -hmm. um, somewhat understanding export regulations. But I don't know other countries' regulations as much as I know the U.S. So it feels like I'm very U.S centered. So um, when you when you talk about travel, how how does that fit into someone who has, you know, their education based in the US? Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, there are a couple ways to approach it. One is um, if you work for a global corporation, then their subsidiaries and affiliates in other countries have to know US law in order to make sure they're not violating regulations, right? So you have to teach export import in all the countries where your business operates. That's one part of it. Mm -hmm. The other part is EU regulations are based on the exact same foundation that U.S. regulations are. And if you're familiar with the Vosnar arrangement for export classifications, there are now like 30 different countries that use the exact same 
basis for classifying their products for export. So if you understand the U.S. regulations, which are based on Bosnar, then you automatically understand you'll have basically the same export compliance regime in all those other countries. So while it is daunting, it is a whole different set of regulations and that's why we always hire people in country to help with that it's not as impossible as it sounds because they're all based on some of the same regulations um and then you mentioned something that made me think of it but i i typically ask this of of most people because i haven't come up with a consensus yet but if um what is your opinion on whether a trade compliance team in a corporation should be reporting to uh, supply chain or you know the the um, the, the business side or uh, I've seen where we reported into legal so do you have, do you have an opinion on uh, which way that should be structured I do <laughs> so I have actually worked in organizations that reported to legal mm-hmm. that reported to the business and then reported to the office of internal governance and here's why I think the compliance trade compliance team should be separate from legal is because you go to legal for advice but I think it should be entirely separate department so that there's no um, What's the word I'm looking for? Cross-pollination. There's no issues that the lawyers already know about. You Sometimes you need that independent legal opinion on something. And I think that's really important to have a legal department doing that, advising you. Yet the compliance department runs independently of that. And then I also did work um, when we reported to the business unit, the business owner part of it. And while that was important for understanding the business controls, then you don't want business people making regulatory and compliance decisions mm-hmm. because they tend to look at risk differently than we do. And so I think you definitely need an independent compliance department for making those decisions and analyzing risk outside of the business goals. And then you need to be able to also go to separate counsel for opinions when you need it. That's just my opinion, but Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to balance your risks. It's definitely a balancing act, and and I appreciate your your answer being you know multifaceted, right? There's no just one answer. It depends right. on the knowledge of your legal team. You know, uh, is there someone in the legal department that has international trade experience that could answer okay. those questions? Or you know, right. it depends on the size of the company. Can you really afford to have you know three different people weighing in with three different perspectives um, when your business, your export-import business is is quite small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it all goes down to the level of risk. Like we, as compliance people, all day long we could say no, but that's not going to support the business objectives. Sometimes we have to find a way. And, And then that's the, it's the business that determines their appetite for risk and we just help them along the way to ensure they're compliant with the regulations. What if if you go, you're in the trade compliance department and you go and you say, hey, you, we probably shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z, whatever, shipping here, using, mm-hmm. the, you know, having this customer, uh, classifying it this way, we should have a license, all these things that, you know, the trade compliance might put a break on. If the business decides that the fines are low enough that they're willing to violate 
the law essentially is that a risk that the business is able to take that a violation of the law never that's an ethical issue never never but if it's a matter of oh we could postpone this transaction for four weeks while we go get an ofac license to do this or something that's different but to go out and do something knowing that is contrary to the law no you could never support that agree to a clearly ethical and legal violation I always felt like I was the the person who says no, like put the brake on everything. Like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Um, but like you said, you might, you might have to be instead the person that says you can't do this, but you can do this or let's wait four right. weeks, like you said. So you always right. have to be within the law, but the, the, the risk that your company needs to decide is, you know, should we should we get this customs you know decision uh, ruling or not that kind of thing right so even if i do find some exception in the law where this item doesn't need a license or or conversely i decide oh we do need an ofac license before we can send that to sudan or something so even if that's my decision then it's up to the business okay if it's going to take four weeks and all of this this effort and you know we have to ask the government for it and so all of these things are you willing to invest that time capital resource into that and will it be worth it in the end if it's something where we're not going to make that much money and then we're going to have a huge compliance burden because we have an OFAC license but it requires a lot of reporting Mm -hmm. and log and and is it worth it I don't know. I mean, that's for the business to decide. But the fact that they can't do it without a license, that's my decision. And there's no negotiating that. Mm-hmm. But if we do want to go for the license, that's the business decision. Are they willing to do it? And keep in mind, they're going to have work to do, too. They have to report to me so often. They have to monitor everything and make sure it's done right. So that what they're willing to do is there enough revenue to support that does it make sense from a business perspective that's the kind of decisions they make you and i make the decisions no you can't do that without a license so you're not doing it tomorrow we -hmm. say yes or no this violates or you can do x y and z and then they can decide which one x y or z do they want to do right okay Well, that's all I had for you today. I, I appreciate all the time. I, I know you have a busy schedule, so we can wrap it up for today. And I definitely appreciate your time and your your expertise and your opinions. Um, thank you so much. 